You are listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to my class on Jubilees. Uh, Some quick words of introduction before we begin the lecture slash class. Jubilees is a Jewish Second Temple work. It's from around probably about 160 BCE. It's written in Hebrew. From there, it's translated into Greek. And from Greek, it was translated into Latin and into Ethiopic. Gez. It has survived in its entirety only in Ethiopic. We do have some Latin, and we do have fragments of it in Hebrew that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This book was very important to Qumran, but it was composed outside the community. It has a much more general uh, tone. It's not particularly sectarian, and uh, it seems to have had a life outside of the community, and simply the community itself adopted it and felt it was very important. In the Christian tradition, Jubilees is called the Little Genesis because it essentially retells the story of Genesis. Uh, Jubilees uh, sets itself up as the secret book that was given to Moshe, to Moses, when he got the Torah at Sinai. And so it's a retelling from the angel's point of view of Genesis up until the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Uh, so it retells biblical stories and law in a way that it has the interpretation baked in so that any sort of problem that the text causes for the author or his intended audience can be kind of explained away through the retelling. Now, I do want to say towards the end of the class, I refer to a story that is commonly referred to as the Chatan Damim story. Chatan Damim means bloody bridegroom. This is the very troubling story that we have in Shemot and Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 to 26, where Moshe is on the way in a malone, in other words, a place where you can sleep. In modern Hebrew, it's a hotel, but it's any any sort of inn. And it says, Hashem hamito. And the Lord met him and wanted to kill him. And what happens is that Zipporah takes some flint and she essentially gives her, her son a circumcision and she throws the foreskin at his feet and she says, Ki chatan damim atali, for you are a bloody bridegroom to me. Then says, Vayuref mimenu az amra chatan damim lamulot. That's a very strange verse. It, essentially, uh, Moshe was, was let go, right? And then she said, a bloody bridegroom to circumcision, to maybe the foreskins. It's very, it's not very clear. So this very puzzling story gets a retelling in Jubilees that you're going to be hearing about towards the end of the class. Again, I refer to this as Chatan Damim, which literally means bloody bridegroom. Now, as usual, there are source sheets that you can find on the post at understandingsin.com. So go to the Jubilees post, the recent Jubilees post on understandingsin.com, and there you'll find as an attachment on the post, you'll find the source sheet that I am reading from throughout this class. So I hope you enjoy the class, and I'm looking forward to your comments. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Jubilees. So reading from the prologue. 
These are the words regarding the divisions of the times of the law and of the testimony of the events of the years of the weeks of their jubilees throughout all the years of eternity. As he related them, he is going to be an angel, actually, as he related them to Moses on Mount Sinai when he went up to receive the stone tablets, the law and the commandments on the Lord's orders as he had told him that he should come up to the summit of the mountain. So these are the words regarding the divisions of the times of the law. In fact, that's that's essentially the title that the Damascus document refers to this of the divisions of the times. And this is this is apparently how they thought of this book of retelling of the these periods. Now, Jubilees is called Jubilees. We call it Jubilees, right? Because it divides all of history into Jubilees, into what it calls weeks which are Shemitah sets, sets of Shemitah years, and there's seven years at a time, and then Jubilee, seven sets of seven, right? So you have, it'll say what week and what Jubilee certain things happen in. It seems to use a solar calendar. Um, however, the holidays are super, super important to the author of Jubilees. Now, there's a general approach that you have Jubilees and then you have an interpolator coming in and fixing certain things, maybe about once every two chapters, that he feels need to be... So, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example. If we go here, let's scroll down for just a bit, to Shavuot Bikurim, okay? And this is something that we would see throughout the Jubilees if we were reading the entire book. The book is 50 chapters, so we're not reading the entire book. Um, so you see where it says Shavuot Bikurim? So during the fifth year of the fourth week of this Jubilee, in the third month, in the middle of the month, Avram celebrated the festival of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Okay, so what is the third month in the middle of the month? It's the middle of? Sivan. Of Sivan, right? It's the middle of Sivan. So from the point of view of the author of Jubilees, this is what day? It's Chagabikurim, it's Shavuot. Okay, so why the middle? Why is it the middle of the month? The other two holidays are the middle of the month. Like if that's exactly that's exactly when you would expect it to be if it had a date. We're so assuming uh, that there's one author though, and then okay, so comes yes, in. there is an assumption that's one author. He's clearly using different sources. Okay, there's editing beyond what you consider of an interpolator. Okay, I might next week go in depth. In, no, no, I'm going to do Enoch. And then we'll do the Washers, Enoch, and Jubilees. And you'll see that Jubilees actually seems to combine two different approaches. Okay, so there's clearly some editing involved and some using other sources. However, as a work, it's a much more complete work than, say, Enoch. Okay, first Enoch is a whole bunch of different books. Jubilees, it has, it has certain concerns that you can see throughout. It has a certain narrative that you can see throughout. Um, there's a certain consistency there that you can really read it as a book. You can actually read Jubilees as a book. But what is the idea of an author and an interpolator? What we have here is, he's saying, what happened? How did Shavuot or the Chagah Bikurim, the festival of the first fruit, start? It started when Avram started it, right? Check this out. No commandment. Avram just started it. And that's how all the holidays start, with some forefather or other just starting it out of kind of a spontaneous need to worship. Okay, so he offered as a new sacrifice on the altar the first fruits of the food for the Lord, a bull, a ram, and a sheep. He offered them on this altar as a sacrifice to the Lord together with their cereal offerings and their libations. He offered everything on the altar with frankincense. He knows exactly how to do a thing. He knows that you have a meat sacrifice together with its cereal offerings and its oil offerings. Everything goes together. He knows how to do it, and he does it. The Lord appeared to him, and the Lord said to Avram, I am the God of 
So that ha- what is this translating? I'm the God of Shaddai. I am Baal Shaddai. Right. Please me and be perfect. I will place my covenant between me and you. I will increase you greatly. Note that this is also the day of the covenant. Okay. So here we see an early source for Shavuot being connected to Brit Benam Tarim. And, and through association, Matan Torah, right? The giving of the Torah, okay? So here we see this idea that these go together because it's the day of a covenant. It's the day of the covenant, all right? The Lord spoke to him and said, my pact is now with you, etc. I will make you very great. So it's, and then he says, as for you, keep my covenant and you and your descendants after you, circumcise all your males, circumcise your foreskin, okay? And he gives them this commandment to do the, do Brit Milah, do circumcision on this day of covenant. Okay, this month, you say, of covenant. And so this is, now we have Shavuot, the, which is the, the, the festival of first fruits. And there's a hinting here that this is in terms of connecting it to the giving of the Torah. That shows the author's approach to holidays. He does this throughout, where the first time the holiday appears is when one of the forefathers comes up with it on his own. Usually what the interpolator will do then is say, these are actually in the heavenly tablets. In other words, yes, the forefather came up with it, but it was because it was inscribed in the heavenly tablets that it was destined to happen. Okay, so the heavenly tablets are something that if we take the view that there's an author and an interpolator, the interpolator really likes this idea of that heavenly tablets that have the law before they're brought down, before they're given to Moses, right? Mm -hmm. Now, let's go back to the introduction, okay, so that we see where's the book of Jubilee supposed to be coming from. Okay, it's the introduction. During the first year of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt in the third month, on the 16th of the month, okay, and here we see a much clearer connection between the giving of the Torah and Shavuot, if we think the Shavuot is the middle of Sivan, right? So if Shavuot is the 15th of Sivan, then on the next day, right, the Lord says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, I will give you this two stone tablets of the law and the commandments which I've written so that you may teach them. So Moses went up the mountain of the Lord. The glory of the Lord took up residence on Mount Sinai. A cloud covered it for six days. When he summoned Moses into the cloud on the seventh day, he saw the glory of the Lord, etc., etc. He stays there for 40 days, 40 nights. He says, pay attention. Pay attention to all the words I tell you. Write them in a book so that their offspring may see that I've not abandoned them because of all the evil they have done in straying from the covenant between me and you, which I am making today on Mount Sinai for their offspring. Now, these are two ideas that are very important for the author of Jubilees. One is that people are going to sin. And from the point of view, from the actual time period when this is written, people have sinned. They are going to be under, you'll see, they're going to be under foreign rule. That doesn't mean that God's abandoned them. So it will be that when all these things befall them, they will recognize that I have been more faithful than they in all their judgments and all their actions. They will recognize that I have indeed been with them. In other words, they'll recognize that they sinned and that's the reason all these bad things happened to them, but that doesn't mean that I, God, have left them. After this, they will return to me from among the nations with all their minds, all their souls, and all their strength. What is that? From from Shema. Right? I will rightly disclose to them abundant peace. I will transform them into a righteous plant. Right? With all my mind and with all my soul. They will become mind again. This is Vanderkam's translation. With all my heart and with all my soul. Okay? They will become a blessing, not a curse. They'll become the head, not the tail. You recognize this, right? From the, right? This is the blessing as opposed to the curse, right? 
Uh, I will build my temple among them and will live with them. I will become their God and they will become my true and righteous people. I will neither abandon them nor become alienated from them for I am the Lord their God. Then Moses fell prostrate and prayed and said, Lord, my God, do not allow your people and your heritage to go along in the error of their minds. And do not deliver them into the control of the nations with the result that they rule over them, lest they make them sin against you. So he's asking God, please don't let them stray. And if other peoples rule them, they're also going to sin. May your mercy, Lord, be lifted over your people. Create for them a just spirit. May the spirit of Blial not rule them. Now, Blial is the bad guy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? He's the, he's the main evil guy for the Dead Sea community. In this chapter, Blial makes an appearance. For the rest of the book, the bad guy's named Mastema. Blial is not a bad guy in the rest of the book. He just kind of disappears. He's mentioned here by, by, uh, by Moshe. He's mentioned in parallel to the rule of foreign nations, okay? May the spirit of Blial not rule them so as to bring charges against them. The same way he said, may, the, may you not deliver them to the control of the nations with the result that they rule over them, okay? So the nations are, uh, foreign rule is terrible. Blial's rule is terrible. But Blial has this role of, so that he doesn't bring charges against them before you and trap them away from every proper path so that they may be destroyed from your presence. And this is what we m- more think of as a satanic job, right? But he's on the inside. Yeah, like he's right. He's on the inside. Like he's going to bring charges against them and also tempt them into sin. He works all the angles, but like the Satan, he's got a role. He's got a job, right? Um, now, again, we don't have, we don't have, Blial kind of disappears after this. But the idea is, and here Moshe continues, they are your people and your heritage whom you've rescued from Egyptian control by your great power. Create for them a pure mind and Holy Spirit. May they not be trapped in their sins from now to eternity. And in response, God's like, well, you know, they're stubborn and they're going to sin. But in the end, all of them will be called children of the living God. Every angel and every spirit will know them. They will know that they are my children and that I am their father in a just and proper way and that I love them. This seems to be speaking to Jews who, this is, look, let's, let's look at what's the, what's the situation in the second temple period. In the second temple period, there's been foreign rule for, you know, or what's considered foreign rule or the threat of foreign rule for a really long time, mm-hmm. right? And the hope is that we will be completely free of foreign rule. Now, now, that's why some place Jubilee is like right before the Hasmonean period, right? So in other words, what is the hope? The hope is that we are going to be free and that this kind of fuels that rebellion, right? And this is going to be the Messianic age, right? If you've ever read anything by uh, Al Baumgarten says that that's the reason why afterwards you get this kind of apocalyptic, uh, almost extremism. He says because people were had so many hopes for the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans, and then when they were dashed, when everything wasn't this wonderful era of Messianic um, law-keeping, they got really disappointed, and they're like, there's got to be some kind of upheaval by God where there's going to be a really divine a divine intervention and uh, bringing, bringing kind of Messiah, quote-unquote, that way. Does that set the stage for Christianity? Well, did that set the stage for Christianity? Okay, briefly. In this period, you've got a lot of small small Jewish groups with different beliefs. I think one of the things that are driving them, if we look at the Qumran period, so this is during the Hasmonean period, right after the Hasmonean period, right, uh, during and after, what you have is you have groups of Jews saying, this is what God wants us to be. This is the correct way to be. This is what we should be keeping. Um, sometimes with, a lot of times with these apocalyptic hopes, right, and it's all kind of combining so you have people who are like, who are like everyone's getting the law wrong, 
And also, once everyone once, and also, we're our persecution is going to end with this great end of evil, right? And we're going to talk about that later. And it it, it does Christianity fits in with this kind of milieu of these small Jewish groups with these beliefs. It was just another one of them, right? And what makes it different is the way that it spreads afterwards, okay? And what allows it to spread the way it does, okay? So the idea of this part of the introduction is that, yes, you've sinned in the past. Clearly, people have sinned. The reason that you're under foreign rule is because you have sinned. But that doesn't mean God has left you. God is with you. This wonderful age is coming. Okay, this is not the only place where this is, it says this in, in, in the book of Jubilees. Now it's going to say, so then what happens? The angel of the presence, Malach Panim. Right, if you want to translate back into Hebrew, the angel of the prince of Malach Panim, who was going along in front of the Israelite camp. Remember, because there's there's uh in in biblically, right, an angels leading the camp at one point, right? Took the tablets which told of the divisions of the years from the time the law and the testimony were created, for the weeks of their jubilees, year by year in their full number, and their jubilees from the time of the creation. Tell in other words, he's taking this kind of history book, right, which has all the all the history from the beginning of creation until the time when the temple of the Lord will be created in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. It's got also for, till the end of time, right? All of the luminaries will be renewed at that time. All the luminaries will be renewed for the purposes of healing, health, and blessing for all the elect ones of Israel, and so that it may remain this way from that time throughout all the days of the earth. Okay, so there's a wonderful age coming. But now he's going to give Moses these other tablets, right? This other account that tells Moses, what, or Moshe really, what actually happened, okay? On the Lord's orders, the angel of the presence said to Moshe, write all the words about the creation, how in six days the Lord God completed all his works, everything that he had created, and kept Shabbos on the seventh day. He sanctified it for all ages and said it was a sign for all his works, for on the first day, he created, look at all the stuff he creates in the first day. He created the heavens that are above, the earth, the waters, and all the spirits who serve before him. Namely, the angels of the presence, the angels of holiness, the angels of the spirits of fire, the angels of the spirits of the winds, the angels of the spirits of the clouds, of darkness, snow, hail, and frost, the angels of the sounds, the thunders, and the lightnings, and the angels of the spirits of cold and heat, of winter, spring, autumn, and summer, and of all the spirits of his creatures which are in the heavens, on earth, and in every place. Okay, where is this coming from? And part of the answer is that angels were very important to Jews of this period when they were not that important in the Jews who were the audience of, of the Hebrew Bible, right? So in other words, angels have become very, very important. So the big question is, when did God create the angels? Uh, the answer is going to be on the first day, because that's when God's setting everything up, right? So God creates the angels on the first day, right? Creates the angels of all these different things, things that we don't normally think of as requiring angels, Right? Do we think of the seasons as requiring angels? We usually do not. Okay. However, particularly as they are heavenly phenomena, okay, they each get their angels. All right. It says the angel told them to write this. It is the thing that it told them to write supposed to be this, like it's the text of Jubilees. Yes. Is it referring to something else? No. It's right now. It's the text of Jubilees, and in fact. There, there, look, there is an approach that the reference to testimony or to maybe to da is actually a different work that Jubilees is claiming to be based on. However, what the angel is saying, the angel is going to keep on narrating. 
the different work is supposed to be the contents of the tablets and put the different Okay, no. Let's, let's, let's put this aside. This is supposed to be the decision of the years. This is what the angel, the angel is dictating this to Moshe. And in fact, there are going to be parts, and we're going to get to them, where the angel speaks directly to Moshe. He's like, remember when I, okay? All right. So there's a narrow, the, the, the first person narrator here is not God. It's the angel of the presence. Okay. And the person he's addressing is Moshe. Now, sometimes it, he narrates Moshe in the, in the third person. Sometimes he addresses him directly. Okay. But frequently, but in general, when, when the first person is used in Jubilees, it's usually the angel. The angel will say, we then did such and such. And what he means is we angels. Did such and such. Okay, we're going to get to that soon, so you'll see what I mean. Okay? Uh, right, well, they don't go that far, right? God God makes everything, but yeah. So they, they, they get very involved, though, in different point, at different points. And we'll see why. I think possibly Persian influence. Uh, once you go through the Persian period, in the Persian in the Persian uh, worldview, angels are very, and demons are very, very central. And once you live in that milieu, that's you start thinking, oh, yeah. And it's not like they're coming out of nowhere. We, we have angels, right? So they're like, oh, right. So so now I want to know about, about all these different angels, and it's important to know where they come from. It's important to know, and we'll see this in Enoch. What do they have up there? What do they see? Okay. Now we Zoroastrian or pre-Zoroastrian? Or... Okay, that's a whole other question, and I don't want to get people upset. Um, <laughs> but let's just say yes. <laughs> let's say yes. <laughs> Okay. There were also the depths, darkness, and light, dawn and evening, which he prepared in the knowledge of his heart. And I, I, I actually flipped this from uh, Vanderkam translated mind, and I put it back heart. Right? Why? Because what does this mean? There were the depths, darkness, and light, dawn and evening, which he prepared in the knowledge of his heart. As Jim Kogel points out, what is this solving? Note that this is. Day one. And the big question is, when are the sun and moon created? Fourth day. Fourth day. So the big question is, where's light from? Created light, but there's no sun yet. Right? right? So if, if you know, if you know, like in, in kind of uh, later Judaism, right, you have this idea of the primordial light, right, which, which the righteous get to see when, you know, um, after, after they die. Um, and in the future, we will all bask in, right, is this primordial light that predates the planet, but the author of Jubilees has solved it a different way. He says, God has already kind of created it in his mind or in his heart, right? So that's what that means, creating light and darkness. In other words, it's all prepared. And I assume that depth is supposed to... Be the home. Yeah. 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 Now, skipping ahead, uh, he gave us the Shabbat day as a great sign so that we should perform work for six days and we should keep Shabbat from all work on the seventh day. He told us, all the angels of the presence and all the angels of holiness, just in case you didn't know who us was, right? All the angels of the presence and all the angels of holiness, these two great kinds, to keep Shabbat with him in heaven on earth. And even, even the angels keep Shabbat, right? Clearly, this is a great thing. By the way, we're used to in the Talmud how it's always saying about how angels don't keep the Torah, only people keep the Torah and stuff like that. It doesn't bother the author of Jubilees. It's a good thing to do something with the angels. It shows how holy we are, right, and how great we are. Okay, the angels are keeping Shabbat. 
and so are we. Now, if we can connect it to the Dead Sea Scroll uh, document, Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, where the idea is that you're singing with the angels, you're praying with the angels, right? So this idea that the angels are, are also celebrating Shabbat. Um, he said to us, I will now separate a people for myself from among my nations. They too will keep Shabbat. I will sanctify the people for myself and will bless them as I sanctify the Shabbat day. I will sanctify them for myself. In this way, I will bless them. They will become my people and I will become their God. In other words, it's all planned out, right? God doesn't just create Shabbat to rest, right? And then afterwards we remember it. No, this is from the beginning. This is created for the Jewish people to keep it. Okay, it says, I have chosen the descendants of Jacob among all of those who I'm seen. I've recorded them as my firstborn son. I've sacrificed them for myself. Just in case you were wondering, are Jews like holier, you know, from the beginning? The answer is, of course, yes. Of course, yes, right? And this is also another, again, this is part of the whole point of Jubilees is that um, we're God's chosen people. God stays with us. We're punished because we sin, but God hasn't abandoned us and good things are coming, right? We just have to, we have to keep the laws. You have to keep the laws. Now, in the next thing, I'm just going to say most of most of the stuff having to do with Adam and Chava stick pretty close to the biblical text, but let's take a look. In the first week, Adam and his wife, the rib, were created. What does that mean, his, his wife, the rib? <laughs> we have the two accounts, right? Male and female, he created them, right? And one and the other is God created man, and then he created female from his ribs. What does it mean, male and female, he created him? Adam was created with a little rib wife. Right? His wife, the rib, were created. And then in the second week, he showed her to him. Okay? This, this is actually after the description of what happens. This is kind of a flashback. It's like, so he showed after creating Adam with Chava kind of already in his rib, after that, a week later, he showed her to him. He, he actually separated. Right. Right. It's trying to reconcile the, reconcile the two accounts. Exactly. Exactly. Therefore, a commandment was given to keep women in their defilement, seven days for a male child and for a female, two units of seven days. So here we have an explanation why when a woman gives birth to a boy baby, she's impure for only a week. And for a female, it's two weeks. And the answer is because they had to, it was only in the second week was, was Chava created, was Eve created. Okay. Eve like separated out. And here is supposed to be an interpolation. This is from the interpolator. Because there's another rule. That hasn't been addressed here, right? After 40 days had come to an end for Adam in the land where he had been created, we brought him into the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. His wife was brought there on the 80th day. After this, she entered the Garden of Eden. For this reason, a commandment was written in the heavenly tablets for the one who gives birth to a child. If she gives birth to a male, she's to remain in her impurity for seven days, like the first seven days. Then for 33 days, she's to remain in the blood of purification. She's not to touch any sacred thing, nor to enter the sanctuary until she completes these days for a male. As for a female, she is to remain in her impurity for two weeks of days, like the first two weeks before Eve is created, and 66 days in the blood of purification, the 66 days before Eve can actually get into the Garden of Eden, right? Their total is 80 days. This is supposed to be from the interpolator. Now, of course, I say supposed to be because there's no actual separate documents. There's an idea that you, when, that you know the interpolator because he has slightly different concerns and because he likes the words heavenly tablets and things like that. So the idea is the original author said, okay, this makes sense. We'll say Eve came in the second week, and that's why you have this difference in impurity. And then an interpolator came on and said, yeah, but there are other rules that aren't covered here. What about the rule? Why do you have 66 days 
if you give birth to a girl for 66 more days, you can't come to the temple. But if they're a boy, it's 33 days. And the answer is, well, this is also, this is the amount of time that they had until they could come into the Garden of Eden, which was like a temple. Like a sanctuary. So, yes. If we're attributing it to the interpolator, uh, starting from verse 9, and doing it because of his supposed uh, concern with uh, purity. This was, is Jim Kogel's approach, by the way, yeah. Then why not do that from the beginning, from, from verse 8? Because that's already dealing with purity laws. The verse, from verse 8, I think the idea is, first of all, as soon as you say, for this reason, a commandment was written in the heavenly tablets, Heavenly tablets is supposed to be like the interpolator's thing, and it only covers the 33 and 66 days. It doesn't cover the original thing. And the original thing is actually really reasonable. The original thing that he says is not, it doesn't feel that force. He's like, yeah, and the second week is when Eve came in. You're like, yeah, because he said, he said, well, she only was only created after those seven days. And that's why you wait to the second week for a girl. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, right? And then this other stuff comes in out of nowhere. Now, I can't, I find it very difficult to say consistently, oh, yeah, this has to be an interpolator when I personally haven't, haven't like gone through all of Jubilees and said, wow, this really pops out, okay? But apparently for people who do go through all of Jubilees, it, it does. I find, I agree with you that it looks very similar. It looks like a similar approach, Right. Um, it looks like a very similar approach. What's supposed to be is that the, supposedly, yeah, yeah, supposedly the interpolator's concern is that, A, things are actually written in the heavenly tablets. They don't just happen because of some spontaneous holy insight of, of Avraham or, or, or Yitzhak or Yaakov or Noah, right? The holidays don't start because someone just had this brilliant idea. They were actually written in the heavenly tablets, so he'll add that. And then there are also very, like, uh, somewhat intense um, halachic additions, like Shabbat laws. And all these Shabbat laws after after Shabbat. Because I never looked at, it's particularly the Ethiopic, I never looked at the Ethiopic with a view to seeing what's interpolated and what isn't. Uh, and I don't think you need to read it as, as an interpolator. I think you can read it as one book. So I, I can't really say... You know, I can't say one way or the other, except that this is, this is, um, it's, it's not surprising to have interpolations. We have, this is a, a, a standard way of dealing with books that you have problems with in the second temple period is you think it's important. You may even think it's holy, but the way to fix it is to add something, right? Mm -hmm. And that would not be a surprise that someone would interpolate something and even go through the whole thing and be fairly consistent with their interpolations. Um, I would even say there are interpolations in Second Maccabees that seem to be from a Judean perspective, uh, you know, to or actually rather to to push the idea of the consecration of the of the Beit Hamikdash. There are interpolations between the first cave version and the fourth cave version of the community rule um, that seem to to push other things. We'll get there when we get there. I'm not a surprise. Are there parts yeah. of the Book of Jubilees that you can call interpolations. Uh, the book itself. This is what, like, if you if you look at Jim Kogel and Outside the Bible, it's not here anymore. But if you look at Jim Kogel and Outside the Bible, he will say these are the verses that are interpolated, and he'll give you a list, right? Not a whole heck of a lot, but he'll give not this huge number, but there, you know, it, like once every couple chapters, there's an interpolation, right? It, and he'll say these are interpolation. What we don't have is any sort of physical evidence of interpolation. I haven't looked in. A lot of times what really cries out interpolation is a switch in vocabulary. 
when it, when there's a switch in vocabulary, the switch in uh, feeling of the language, a lot of times you say, oh, okay, this, this looks like it's coming from somewhere else. Now, he says it's the heavenly tablets. I don't know what other words are kind of keywords for the interpolator. They may be, there may be more than that. I'm not, I'm not up on it. Okay. Yeah. This is okay, it's like the guest stuff that happened in the Right. This is made up. This is made up. It's made up stuff, but it's trying to place things that are in Vayikra into Breshit. So some so things that are in Leviticus into Genesis. Holy. How did it... This is the whole approach in the Second Temple period that it's... Uh, why not? I mean, it's got all the good stuff, right? Like, clearly... Right. Yeah, but who? Like, one person said this? Like, where's... Like... Okay, look. You have, you have a guy who writes it, right? One assumes... Okay, when it seems a guy writes it, and it's meant to be taken seriously. Like, look at this secret book I found, right? It's the actual, it's it's what's behind the whole story. And they read it, and they're like, this is great. It explains where we get these laws from. Consciously deceiving other people. That is always the big question with Second Temple literature. Was a, a person who was actually trying to deceive people? Did he have some revelation? Did he somehow believe this was true? Did he say this is these are important ideas I need to get across, and this is how you do it? There's a, there, it's very hard to know what was in the minds of the people when they wrote them, what they thought they were doing. Right now, you could say, well, this is sacrilegious. How can you have that? I know that I taught um, the story of Rabbi Akiva. Uh, the story where Moshe goes up and he sees God tying things on the letters and he says, why are you doing that? And he's like, Rabbi Akiva's going to happen. And I was telling this story, I was reading from the Talmud, right? And this Christian student of mine said, this is false prophecy. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you're putting words in God's mouth. And I'm like, this is a story. It's meant to convey an idea, <laughs> right? So you can see that we take certain things for granted and other things are sacrilegious, right? I take it for granted that you can tell a story like that about Moshe and Rabbi Akiva and it's not sacrilegious, right? It's meant to convey an idea, right? But if I read this, I'm like, how can someone write this and say that it was a secret book of Moses? How can you do that, right? And it's very hard to know how did the person who was writing it think, what did he think he was doing? Maybe he just, uh, did he? Let's 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 not be politically correct right, and, and admit it was probably him. Collect ideas that were circulating, or one day these ideas were not. In the world. No, no, no. I would I would say that that it's pretty clear that at least in certain cases he collected ideas that were circulating. Yes. So the, the, the way you have Bible critics, you've got Jubilees critics who say this this segment is author X and this segment is author right, y. right, right, right. But not as many. Like there are not as many things. I I mean, like I said, so you have this main, but it, you can like I can even start saying, well, look at chapter seven and look at chapter ten. They're clearly talking about things in different ways. They're using different terminology for the same thing, right? And I will say that to you right now, right? So then the question is, wait, so was it different authors? I think probably not. I think he used different sources. I think he was using different sources and he was combining different sources. So to you know, it, it's very easy to. It's, it's easy to, to split apart. In the final analysis, you can read Jubilees as a book, um, which is, yeah, like, you can read it as a whole work. Even if you read the inter- the, what could be the interpolations as not the interpolations, as part of a whole thing, it's still in keeping with the general tenor. Yeah, it's, a gen- it's keeping with the general tenor of the, of the book, which is to take these laws and say they, they were there from the very beginning. Is there the, a- you know, these laws were there from the very beginning. You, you see these, you know, you have an impurity law for a woman who gives birth. Oh, that was already an actual, the actual creation of man, right? The source of that is the actual creation of Adam and Eve. Like, how early can you get, right? Oh, yeah, that holiday? No, that's super important. 
Because it came from my came came from the very beginning. And some people think that there's a I, I'm for some reason I'm blocking whether it's first Maccabees or second Maccabees where where there are people who say oh let's stop with being different from all the other people like that's 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 elated that's that's something we've been doing recently let's go back to being like all the other nations right and some read this approach as against that idea some say well that was maybe that was really an idea in the second temple period there were people who said you know we didn't used to be this separate we used to be like everyone else like not not like ancient ancient but recently like we, we this is all new stuff all these all these things we're doing just just us so let's go back and be like all the nations and jubilees is saying no 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 they go way back they go all the way back right all these laws and these sacrifices and these holidays they go back to the very beginning right yeah i'm just going to make the observation i wonder if you would agree or not that from what I've seen of this, and my limited knowledge of a few of the other apocryphal books, they just don't seem to be great literature. No kidding. Absolutely. I have said it more than once. The books in the Second Temple period are wordy and derivative. Okay? They are, they, if they, if you can, if you can say it in two verses, why say it in one? It's, it's a Although very, even, very wordy. Yeah, but even when we were doing the Trastar, for example, you, no, you could distinctly, yeah. like, there, there, are, there are books within there which are clearly better written than others. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. You can, biblical books, there are, there are biblical books that you say this, these are great, and there are other biblical books that you're like, really? eh, I don't know, <laughs> right? But, but, but nothing, nothing in, like, it just, so this is, you know, you're, you're not like, I'm not like, oh, gee, you know what? It just said this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna delete this paragraph, okay, and not keep, not bring it because it's exactly the same. It's three paragraphs ago. <laughs> you, you don't, you don't usually have, or it's just you're repeating it in different words. It's very, very wordy. It really is. And just another thing that I, I, I like to say is, anyone who decides that books from the Hebrew Bible actually date late to the Second Temple period have not read Second Temple literature, right? Second Temple literature. It's very different. It's very different and is also clearly being built frequently through interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, right? That's, that's one of the creative engines of Second Temple literature is that it's trying to explain and reconcile the Hebrew Bible. Right, that's one of the that's uh, one of those things that actually create Second Temple literature. Obsession with time. Uh, oh yeah, it's a real obsession with time. So what, that, that okay, the that the the, the obsession just, with time. Just stylized for the book. I read it two months. It's 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 um, part of it has to do with the idea of a calendar. That calendars are very important, knowing when things happened and will happen, and also the ideas. For example, I think Vanderkam points this out, um, and this is a great. In the Jubilee of Jubilees, in other words, the 50th, within the 50th set of 50 years, in the history that the Book of Jubilee sets out, okay, there are both types of redemption that are supposed to happen in the Jubilee year. There is the exodus of Jews, they are freed from slavery, and they get their homeland. They come into the land of Israel within those 50 years. In the Jubilee of Jubilees, in the book of Jubilees, What's the, first thing in, that happens? the first thing is that is the redemption of the slaves, they yeah, the Exodus, right? And the second thing is the redemption of the land. They come to the land of Israel. Which is 40 years. And that's 40 years. And both and both and of them fall out within the window of those 50 years of the Jubilee of Jubilees, right? 
Oh yeah, there was this big interest in calendars and time, and of course there was a big interest in, in uh, predicting the future. Also, when is this going to when, when is this going to end? Right? When is it going to be? But also, um, there's also from a scribal perspective, there's kind of this scribal milieu where they're very interested in astronomy and time. Okay. Now, of course, a scribe is a person who's producing this thing, right? So, like, you, there's there's this kind of interest in that specifically among the people who are writing these books, also, and that's throughout the ancient Near East, actually. And there seems to be contact between some of the scribes who are involved with astronomic stuff in in Yehuda, and somehow the scribes of like you know more um, kind of the Babylonian, like it's 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 interesting. And there's a there's discussion about how these ideas kind of crossed over. Is there a sense of who the target audience is at the time of the writing? Like, is it for the is it for a chosen few, or is it for somebody to sit on on top of a hilltop and read to the to, to, to the masses? I I I would I vote for reading to the masses because I don't feel like the message that Jubilees gives is a particularly exclusive one. In other words, not it, it, and not uh, right, and not that not particularly esoteric. In other words, you can listen and you can understand, and you're like, oh, that's what happened, and oh, that's why, yeah, we can't do that, and and yes, and and there are there's a string of promises and blessings that ensure that that the, that the descendants of Yaakov will be protected from evil in the long term, right? And I think, and I really think it doesn't seem to be esoteric. It doesn't seem to be actually particularly hidden. It seems to be much more like the sort of thing that someone would read to a bunch of people to listen to. And it does seem to have had a, a wide range. I mean, the fact is, it got to the Christians, right? It got to the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was central to the Dead Sea Scrolls. It had a pretty large um, influence. Of course, uh, one group that didn't keep it were the, was Ale- the Alexandrian Jews, right? That didn't make it into the Septuagint. Uh, at least not the standard one. So... But at any rate, now I do want to get to their approach to kind of demons, right? With Mastema and the Watchers is an interesting thing. We're going to come back to the Watchers later after we deal with this in Enoch. So in Mastema and the Watchers, so the Watchers are the angels who mate with women, okay, in Enoch, based on Breshit Vav, who are the Bnei Elohim who, who, who mate with Benot Adam, the, 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 uh, Angels or whatever they are who mate with with human women. And Jubilees is based on Enoch. And it, it, it's during the third week of this Jubilee, impure demons began to mislead Noah's grandchildren to make them act foolishly low and to destroy them. Then Noah's sons came to their father Noah and told him about the demons who were misleading, blinding, and killing his grandchildren. He prayed before the Lord. God said, God of the spirits, which are in all inanimate beings, etc., 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 because for your mercy for me has been large and your kindness to me has been great, may your mercy be lifted over the children of your children and may the wicked spirits not rule them in order to destroy them from the earth. So they're being beset by these demons who are uh, descended from the watchers, we will see soon. And now you bless me and my children so that we may increase, become numerous and fully earth. You know how your watchers, the fathers of these spirits, have acted during my lifetime. As for these spirits, you who have remained alive, imprison them and hold them captive in the place of judgment. Okay, so here the watchers who are the angels who went down and mated with women, they're the fathers of these spirits. These spirits are now demons, okay? Essentially demons, these demonic, these impure demons, they're causing, they're misleading, blinding, and killing, and they're causing them to sin. Misleading and blinding both mean causing them to sin, and killing either directly causing violence, or they're killing them through their sins, right? They're sinning and therefore dying, okay? So he says, bind them up, 
for they are savage and were created for the purpose of destroying. May they not rule the spirits of the living, for you alone know their punishment, and may they not have power over the sons of the righteous from now and forevermore. Then our God, says the angel, then our God told us to tie up each one. So God tells the angels, tie them up. And then Mastema, when Mastema, the leader of the spirits, came, he said, Lord Creator, leave some of them before me. Let them listen to me and do everything that I tell them. Because if none of them is left for me, I shall not be able to exercise the authority of my will among mankind. Here's this guy, Mastema. We've never heard of him before. Uh, Mastema means hostility. It's a word that we see in, uh, in Hosea. Okay? And he's called the angel Mastema, usually. So angel, he was probably in the Hebrew, it probably just simply meant the angel of hostility. Right? But already in the, in the Ethiopic and probably already in the Greek, he's called Mastema. He's considered his, his proper name is Mastema, right? Sounds a little bit like Satan, and that seems to be the role that he has, right? Because he's supposed to have the authority over mankind. For they are meant for the purposes of destroying and misleading before my punish, before my, my punishment, because the evil of mankind is great. In other words, I've got, I've got to use these, these demons are going to be, I, I need these demons. Then he said, namely, God, that a tenth of them should be left before him, while he would make nine parts descend to the place of judgment. In other words, God thinks Mastema makes a good argument, and he binds up nine tenths and leaves one tenth of them for Mastema. He told one of us, one of us angels, that is, that we should teach Noah all their medicines because he knew that they would neither conduct themselves properly nor fight fairly. We acted in accord with his entire command. Okay, so he left a tenth of them. Why in the world would someone want to write this? Yes. What, what exactly is, is his argument why uh, he deserves to get some of it? What it seems to be a bit muddled. What it seems to be is I need help to, I've got a job, right? It involves, exercising, it involves me punishing people for their evil. And I need these demons help, right? I need them to help me. And God's like, well, that's a good argument. You know, I'll leave you one-tenth of these evil demons. Yeah. And, and, and he's like, like the Asara Kabim. Yeah, yeah, really. And he's like, I'll, leave you, I'll, you know, I'll give you one-tenth. And that's what the angels do. He says, the angels, okay, bind them up. And he says, look, it says, all the evil ones who were savage were tied up in the place of judgment. Well, we left a tenth of them to exercise power on the earth before the Satan. Okay, this is actually transcribed, right? It's written Satan in Ethiopia, apparently also in Greek, right? So they're calling him a Satan. Right? And they're leaving a tenth of the evil ones in front of him. Now, why would? And they teach Noach medicine to kind of help them against these evil spirits. And the evil spirits were precluded from pursuing Noach's children. In other words, because he, he knows medicine, which in, which in Enoch is, is, is not allowed. Because they do all sorts of bad things. They don't so just. It's referring to it's, re, re, it's, it's calling him the Satan. In other words, in other words. Satan is a concept and he's. Satan is a concept and he's, 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 that's what he is. So they're not saying, oh, he is Satan, what we would say now, Satan. No. He's, he's, he's uh, the Satan. He's like a Satan, right? But, but he's calling him, but they say the Satan. So, and, but that's, that's what he, he has a job. He's got some kind of role in the heavenly court. He says to God, give me a tenth. God says, yup. Okay. Why? And, and, and one of the questions is, we're going to have more Mastema later in a sec. Why would anyone want to write this? Why would anyone want to believe that God would leave a tenth of these demons to do the will of Mastema? To explain evil in the world. It explains evil. <laughs> it explains evil. And not only does it explain evil, it says those, that evil, yeah, it seems just like total chaos, but total, um, like, total happenstance, but actually it's all being directed and it's being directed by someone who belongs to the heavenly court. In other words, it's not completely divided from God's will. Right. In other words, this could still be called um, uh, monotheism. Right. 
It can still be called monotheism, and it, and it puts everything into a system. Reverse uh, Pandora's box. A, a, a bit of a reverse Pandora's box, yeah. And so it's it's all we, within a theistic system, right? And I, uh, in an article coming out soon, um, I compare this to um, what Vandertorn said about the uh, ancient Near Eastern literature when it says that the Pashitu demon was created by the gods in order to curb human um, overpopulation, in order to curb overpopulation. Is this Mesopotamian? Yes, Mesopotamian, yeah. And they, they say, well, the Pachito demon was created by, by the gods in order to curb overpopulation, but then when you have, but you have actual curse texts, when you have prayers from Mesopotamia, they address the Pachito demon as a horrible, chaotic demon, right? Because it goes around killing babies and doing horrible things like that. And the same way here, we actually have this effort to put these these um, what they're, what are frequently called bastard spirits because they're the result of an illicit union. These bastard spirits to put them into a theistic system, into a system where God is at the head and they're reporting to some demon that's in the heavenly court. But if you look at Qumran and you look at the prayers against them, it never mentions Mastema. It doesn't say, "Oh, Mastema, stop them," or "Oh, tell Mastema to stop them." It just says, "God." Please stop these horrible spirits that are in me trying to influence me. In me fighting with the laws of God that are within me. Wait, so what do we see from that? So uh, what I think, what, what I see from that is that it's nice to try and say, oh yeah, look, they're really part of a, of a divine system. But people who are being beset by troubles or even evil desires are not going to want to relate them to a heavenly system. They're much more likely to relate them to these kind of chaotic forces that then you turn directly to God and say, God, please stop me against these chaotic forces that seem to be outside of the system. They're not, that people don't so, so quickly accept that these horrible things are somehow part of a divine plan if that's what they're suffering from. Other people who aren't suffering from it have no problem saying it's part of a divine plan, but the people suffering from it usually have it a little bit more difficult. So we read about Shavuot Bikurim already. Now let's go just quickly at the end of this class. Let's look at some other sources about what Mastema does for the rest of the book. Okay, Mastema is the main baddie in Jubilees. Okay, he's the bad guy. All right. And he becomes a great way for the author of Jubilees to solve real theological problems. Let's take a look. Here we have, during the seventh week, it's under more Mastema, right? During the seventh week, in the first year, during the first month, on the twelfth of this month, in this Jubilee, there were voices in heaven regarding Avraham, that he was faithful in everything that he told him, that the Lord loved him, and that in every difficulty he was faithful. Then Prince Mastema came and said before God, Avraham does indeed love his son Yitzchak and finds him more pleasing than anyone else. Tell him to offer him as a sacrifice on an altar. Then you will see whether he performs the order and will know whether he is faithful in everything through which you test him. In other words, why is Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Yitzchak, a thing? Because Masema brought it up, right? Masema brought up this thing. Very much like what the Satan does, right? What the Satan does to Job. Right, exactly. It's the same it's setup. It's, it's, it's almost like a direct like a copy of it. Right, right. It's exactly it's just like, let's let's just take what happens in, in, in Job and put it into the Yitzchak story so we don't have this weird thing like, why would God do this? And the answer is, oh, because Mastema started it. Okay? Here's another really good example. During the sixth year of the third week of the 49th Jubilee, you went, it's talking about, the angel is speaking to Moshe. Okay? He's saying, you, Moshe, went and lived there for five weeks in one year. Then you returned to Egypt in the second week, meaning the second 
group of Shemitah years in that Jubilee. Uh, during the second year of that seven years in the 50th Jubilee, you know who spoke to you at Mount Sinai and what the Prince of Mastema wanted to do to you while you were returning to Egypt. Okay, what did the Prince of Mastema want to do most to Moshe when he was returning to Egypt? Kill him. Right. Kill him. Malone, right? Yeah. right, right. It's the story of the Malone. It's the Chatan Damim story. It's the story where it seems like God wants to kill Moshe, right? And then there's a, there's a circumcision that somehow saves him, right? Here, no, Mastema wanted to kill him. Did he not wish with all his strength to kill you and to save the Egyptians from your power because he thought, saw that you were sent to carry out punishment and revenge on the Egyptians? I rescued you from his power. So not it wasn't Sipara doing a circumcision. It wasn't a circumcision at all. It was the angel of the presence that saved Moshe from Mastema. It wasn't God at all. Okay, no problem. We have now solved the problem of Chatan Damim because we have taken God out of the picture. It is now simply Mastema trying to help the Egyptians. Okay, just a few more very quick examples just to see how Mastema kind of is, is used throughout the book. The prince of Mastema would stand up against you, against you, Moshe, and wish to make you fall into the power's power. He would help the Egyptian magicians, and they would oppose you and perform in front of you. Why do you have to say Mastema helped the, the magicians? Where else would they get power? How else could they do anything? What's this thing that they could do magic? Where's that from? How does he know what's this when? And the answer is Mastema helped them out. Okay. Despite all the signs and miracles, the prince of Mastema was not put to shame until he gained strength and cried out to the Egyptians to pursue you with all the Egyptian army, with their chariots, their horses, and with all the throng of the Egyptian people. Why were the Egyptians chasing the Jews even after the plagues? Because God hardened their heart? No! Mastema egged them on! Right? The devil made me do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely the devil made me do it. But except here, must it must be brought in to solve any place that causes theological issues where we'd be like, how? I don't understand. God's making them do it and then they're getting. That doesn't seem right. And the answer is no, it wasn't God. Must they made them do it. Does the story of Balak and Balam ever come up in uh, this literature in, uh, in, in Jubilees? No, no, because not, not as far as I remember, because it's after Sinai. And it can only go up to Sinai. So on the 14th day, the 15th, the 16th, the 17th, and the 18th, okay, the prince of Mastema was bound and locked up behind the Israelites so he could not accuse them. What's he going to accuse them of? We'll see in a second. On the 19th day, we released him so that they, released them so that they, one assumes Mastema and his demons, so that they could help the Egyptians and pursue the Israelites. He stiffened their resolve and made them stubborn. In other words, Mastema made the Egyptians stiffen their resolve and he stiffened their resolve and made them stubborn. That was Mastema who made the Egyptians chase after them. What would be keeping Mastema from accusing them about? On the 14th day, it's going back on the 14th, on Yadal Nisan, right? We bound him so that he could not accuse the Israelites on the day when they were requesting utensils and clothing from the Egyptians. Utensils of silver, utensils of gold, utensils of bronze, and so that they could plunder the Egyptians in return for the fact that they were made to work when they enslaved them by force. We did not bring the Israelites out of Egypt at the hand. And so who told the Israelites to borrow things they weren't going to pay back? The angels were in front behind it. In other words, God didn't tell the Israelites to borrow things. On the contrary, the angels have to bind up Mastema so he doesn't accuse the Israelites of stealing. 
right? So he has to bind the Mustang. They buy the Mustang. The Israelites and, 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 and the Israelites deserve it. They deserve it because it says in return for the fact that they were made to work when they enslaved them by force. Accuse them means accuse them before God, right? Seems to be, yeah. So and it, there seems to be an underlying idea here that you're only guilty of a sin when you're in as much as Mastema is saying to God. Well, look, we like I know because for me it's not it's not that hard because like on Yom Kippur we say Haskategor, right? Make the prosecutor silent, right? So what does that mean? If you sinned, what does it mean if God makes the prosecutor silent? You sinned, you're gonna pay, right? And the answer is no. You, if you can get the accuser to be quiet, maybe God will have mercy, right? So the idea seems to be this is his job. Mastema has this double as as his triple job, right? He causes pain to people like the Israelites. He causes sin and he accuses them of sin, right? He's the prosecutor, very much like the Satan, right? Very much like this. What what becomes the satanic world? Not you know, like later on, the satanic world takes on all these aspects, right? But we, here we have them. Here we have the sting operations in order to get them. That's something to accuse them. Right, right, right. And and, and here... He's guilty right, of entrapment. Right, he's guilty of entrapment, but notice that here, all he's got to do is accuse them because the angels already told him he'll take this stuff from the Egyptians, right? So he's in this time by changing. Or, or, the, angel, or the angels didn't tell them, but... but but they're taking it and they're they're they deserve it because of all their unpaid labor, right? Yes. Everyone's as that's what I'm saying. Everyone, there's certain issues that are not theologically troubling for the initial audience of the Hebrew Bible that become troubling the Second Temple period. That in the Second Temple period, people are thinking about these things and they're like, huh, that, that doesn't sit well. That doesn't seem right. So how do you fix it? There are two ways to fix it. You can either go in and fix it, mm-hmm. right? And it's too late to do that. Like, it's already it's already accepted. These books are holy. You don't mess with them too much. There are some different versions. By this point, by Jubilees, by the time of Jubilees, you have different versions of the Bible where some versions of the Bible do have fixes in them, mm-hmm. right? There are things that are fixed in certain versions of the Bible, and those exist when Jubilees is being composed, right? But by the time Jubilees is being composed, it's much easier to simply retell the whole thing. You're not going to go in and, 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 and edit it, right? You're going to instead retell it with all the problematic parts taken out or changed. Or explained away. Or explained away. Or explained away. Sometimes in very obvious ways and sometimes in less obvious ways. So, for example, it's a less obvious thing to say that for the eight, for it to pretend that God didn't tell the Israelites to borrow the utensils, right? That's That seems much more subtle than simply flipping God to Mastema when Moshe's life is in danger. So, so in, this is, yeah. In, in Jubilees, <laughs> there's no mention of Satan. It's all Mastema? They call him a Satan. Oh, they do call him Yeah, yeah, yeah. We read that. We read right. that. They call him a Satan. They call him a Satan, right? Okay. So... In some of these things, uh, like, for example, the uh, about the instructions to uh, take the utensils, um, that, that seems to... It, yeah. it contradicts the actual text in the Torah, where it, because it does put that in the mouth of God. Right. So, I mean... They don't have a problem with that. I mean, it's it, uh, again, it's again. I think, I think that it's much more com- makes people much more comfortable, and uh, apparently not. I mean, a lot of there's a lot of. How does it make them more? Yeah, or maybe, maybe the the question should be this then: the, is is this supposed to supplant? That is the question. The question is: is this supposed to supplant the Torah? I actually think that no. There are certain sections that don't seem to make much sense if you don't know. Like, for example. Look, if you read how it rewrites Chatan Tamim, 
You have to know the Chatan Damim story to know what the heck it's talking about. Yeah. It's like, remember when you tried to kill you? If you don't know, it doesn't describe it happening. It doesn't describe it happening. Saying, remember when I saved you from Mastema trying to kill you on your way? And clearly, we, the audience, are supposed to know the story, right? Where it says explicitly that God intended. And then we're like, oh, I guess we heard it wrong, or or the text was wrong, or or something. But at least now I don't have this really disturbing thing of like, why would God try to kill Moshe on his way to save his people? Like that, like it's really, really confusing. And like, or like the midrash says, if I if I teach a kid, the midrash says, right, they're going to be much, they're going to a lot of things are going to sit much better with them until they actually go back and really read. Text again. Is there an element? <laughs> is there an element of the emperor's new clothes here? If you don't know, you don't deserve to know. Like what? If- no, I, I don't think so. I don't. I, I think like I think that the, the intent is to actually make it better. Like I think I think it's supposed to be a. There, there's, you know. a there's a difference though. I think this goes, this goes it, much it, further than it goes much further. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yes. As an approach that bend it as much as you want, as long as you don't break it. You could bend it. You know, like, but but what, the reason way, the reason midrash can do that is because they quote the verse. Midrash, you always quote the verse, right? Yeah. Or you refer to the verse, and then. You can say absolute things that go absolutely against, right? I always, I'm, I'm sorry, I know this is like sacrilegious, right? But when it says David didn't sin, and anyone who says that David sinned, you don't get a portion of Olam Haba. I'm like, and I said, I'm like, this <laughs> is my father. I'm like, I'm like, it says he sinned, and Natan comes to him and says, I, you sinned, and then David says, you're right, I sinned. <laughs> right? So like, what is this coming? Why? What is this? Right? And the answer is, well, we quoted it, so it's fine. Right? So it's like, there. yes, yes, Midrash, Midrash will take it very far. They don't just take it a little far. They take it really far, right? The Chatam Damim, by the way, in Chatam Damim, the God is explained as angel of God in Septuagint and Unculus. Antargamunculus. So it's not that this is never, no one's tried the solution. This is a solution that's tried, right? So it's, 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 uh, you know, this is, it's true that what makes it really daring, and I think what doesn't sit well with us, is that it's not quoting the verse. It's making it very clear, like, no, don't read that. Read this, right? But at the same time, you're not going to be able to follow it if you're not familiar with the stories. If you don't actually already know the Hebrew text, you're not going to be able to know what it's, what it's explaining away. Right, so I, I, but if you I, I mean, text too well, then you see the contradictions. That's okay, because this is the, what really happened, right? That's the idea. Like this is what really happened. So the idea is, yeah, I know, I know, I know Bible, I know it by heart, because what else do I have to read, right? But, but, but now I read this, and I'm like, oh, now it all makes sense. And these were actually given at the same time. This is the real story. Great. Okay, now I get it. How people reconciled it in their mind, who knows? But again, I do think that you actually had to know the stories, the biblical stories, in order to kind of follow what's going on in Jubilees. Well, I hope you enjoyed that lecture. And if you have any comments or questions, please leave them on the post at understandingsin.com. Look for the Jubilees class. Leave your questions on the post. And I will take the questions that require an in-depth answer and add them to my Q&A episode. So I'm looking forward to your comments and speak to you next time. You've been listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.